If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 418 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Great run of form of late. Last week's episode with Sergio Guzman of Columbia Risk Analysis. That's ColumbiaRiskAnalysis.com. And he gave us an overview and an explanation of the results of the congressional and legislative uh, elections that took place. And indeed, uh, the sort of leadership primaries. So if you want to decipher or you need some deciphering of the results of the elections, please tune into that one. Doing very well, pulling in the listeners daily. And of course, prior to that, we had Simon Mejia, kind of a coup for the Columbia Calling Podcast, one of the founding members of Bomba Estéreo. So you'll know that group. Anyone out there will know that group. They're playing in London in July at Somerset House if you want to go and see them. Tickets aren't that expensive. And I think in such an intimate setting, it'll be quite a lot of fun. I've got my tickets. I'll be there with my wife. And so if you're there, yeah, you know, keep a lookout and maybe we'll get a drink together. Uh, anyway, that would be fun. And beyond that today, we've got uh, Rafael Struve. Rafael is of Venezuelan origin and he's the director, host, producer of The State of Venezuela podcast. Highly recommended. He's got some great interviewees on there. And who better than he to talk to us about what's going on in Venezuela, what's going on in that conflicted border area between the states of uh, Apure in Venezuela and Arauca in Colombia. And of course, with a look to the Colombian presidential elections. Uh, of course, these all play in together. And we're talking Russia too, Russia's influence in Venezuela. Uh, very interesting, especially in this time. And we'll be discussing all sorts of things about these two countries, or these three countries, and well, their relationships and so on. So Please continue to spread the word about the Columbia Calling podcast. Please continue to spread our Patreon campaign page. I've got a little secret up my sleeve for you in a couple of months' time for those Patreons out there, because I will have a book about Columbia coming out. It's not a guidebook. It's more about the politics, society, and culture. And for our Patreon supporters, uh, from a certain tier level of support, uh, I will be putting that book in there as a reward. But that's a few months down the line yet because I have to get it printed and so on. And you'll have to specify if you want ebook or solid book or whatever. If you do want the hardback, not hardback, the hard copy, of course, I'll send it signed. 
to you. Uh, but that's further down the line. That's the big idea anyway. So this has been me chatting at the beginning of episode 418. We now go over to Emily Hart with the news and then back to listen to Raphael Struve and myself chatting about Venezuela, Colombia, Russia, Ukraine, you name it. Uh, thank you again. Great episode coming up. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of March 28th, 2022. Last week's scandal and confusion amid the electoral scrutiny revealed nearly 400,000 extra votes and three extra seats in the Senate for leftist party Pacto Histórico. What followed this week were calls for a general recount, calls of fraud and the convening of the National Commission of Electoral Guarantees, called last Friday by President Ivan Duque. The commission includes government ministers, police and the army, National Protection Unit, Migration and Tax Authorities, Political Parties and the Electoral Observation Mission. Despite the calls for a full recount being supported by the National Registrar and figures on the political right, including former President Álvaro Uribe and current President Ivan Duque, the idea ultimately lacked broad political support, as well as lacking a legal mechanism or precedent to recount all votes, which could have caused institutional crisis threatening the stability and legitimacy of the whole election, according to the Electoral Observation Commission. Meanwhile, Colombia's presidential candidates to be elected in May have announced their vice presidential running mates. Left-wing leader of Pacto Histórico, Gustavo Petro, has announced lawyer and award-winning environmental and Afro-Colombian feminist activist Francia Marquez as his running mate. Leader of the centrist coalition Centro Esperanza, Sergio Fajardo has named Luis Gilberto Murillo, a fellow centrist and mining engineer originally from Chocó, former governor of that department and environment minister in the government of Juan Manuel Santos. Leader of right-wing coalition Equipo por Colombia, Federico Gutierrez has announced Rodrigo Lara Sanchez, a doctor and centrist former mayor of Neva Wheeler, who is son of a former Minister of Justice, Rodrigo Lara Bonilla, who was assassinated on the orders of Pablo Escobar in 1984 due to his prosecution of cocaine traffickers from the Medellin cartel. Ingrid Betancourt has named José Luis Esparza, a retired colonel who commanded Operation Jaque, the military operation which freed Betancourt herself and 14 others from a hostage situation in 2008, after six years kidnapped by guerrilla group, the FARC. The International Committee of the Red Cross has reported that there are still six active armed conflicts in Colombia, and that 2021 was the year with the highest record of explosive attacks, displacements, confinements and disappearances since 2016, when the peace agreement with the FARC was signed. All six internal conflicts saw an uptick in 2021, with spiralling violence between rebel groups, the ELN, FARC dissident groups, criminal structures like the Clan del Golfo and Colombia's armed forces. 2021 saw 486 victims of explosions, 53% of them civilians, the highest number in the last five years, as well as the displacement of 53,000 people an increase of 148% over 2020. There was also an increase in the number of missing persons, which hit 168, or one every two days, in 2021. 
The Red Cross further warned that in 2022, the picture could be even more complex. Also this week, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders raised the alarm on the murders of defenders of the NASA indigenous people, denouncing that children are being murdered after a 14-year-old human rights defender was killed and another was forcibly abducted amid numerous reports of youth recruitment by armed groups. And an indigenous signatory of the 2016 peace deal was murdered this week in Cauca. Jorge Canchi Ramos was 42 years old. 11 signatories of the peace deal have been assassinated this year, 310 since 2016. After 2022 began with clashes between armed groups in the Colombian Department of Arauca and the Venezuelan state of Apure, NGO Human Rights Watch has reported there were 103 killings in Arauca between January and February, with at least 3,860 people displaced within the department. The report also details collaboration between guerrilla group the ELN and members of the Venezuelan army, particularly in confrontation with dissident FARC groups. While for years there has been talk of Colombian armed groups operating without obstacles in Venezuela, Human Rights Watch documents active alliances and joint operations. The group also report that the government's efforts to protect civilian and refugee population have been insufficient. They call for a declaration of public emergency in the area to address the crisis. Police in Bogotá have suffered two explosive attacks this month. The second perpetrated this weekend, killing two children and injuring 10 people, damaging the police station and around 50 nearby homes. A dissident FARC group have claimed responsibility for the attack. And in Bogotá, as the Estéreo Picnic Music Festival was kicking off, Taylor Hawkins, the drummer in Foo Fighters, died in his hotel on Friday, the day of the band's planned performance. An ambulance was called when he began suffering chest pains, but the 50-year-old was declared dead upon arrival. The Attorney General's office published a report saying the drummer had various substances in his bloodstream at the time of death, but the cause of death has yet to be confirmed. Fans gathered outside the hotel to mourn on Friday night. The group has won 12 Grammy Awards and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year. And Disney's animated film about Colombia, Encanto, has won an Oscar. The Disney film, inspired by the magic realist novel 100 Years of Solitude, portrays a family displaced by violence whose members all have a special power. Written by Hamilton's Lin-Manuel Miranda and inspired by Colombian history, geography and culture, the soundtrack has also been a global hit, topping the Billboard chart for weeks. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 418 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. My very special guest is Rafael Eduardo Struve, who's in Houston at the moment. We're going to talk about not only his podcast, the State of Venezuela podcast, but we're going to talk about, well, let's just talk about Venezuela, Colombia, and what's going on in the world at the moment, because I feel now, obviously, for I mean, for good reason, for justifiable reason, Ukraine and Russia have taken the airwaves. I mean, we understand why, but 
we can't ignore what's going on in this area. And you guys that listen to this podcast, obviously tune in because you want to hear about what's going on in this part of the world. So we're going to talk Colombia, Venezuela, uh, Russia, and so on. And, and Rafael is perfectly positioned to discuss these things as the producer, director, creator of the State of Venezuela podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. So Rafael, welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Richard. I, I heard the last episode and I heard that your guest was the um, the guest that had the largest amount of views for the podcast, which means that it's going to be a tough act to follow, but I will do my very best. Yes, that's right. That's Sergio Guzman from, from Columbia Risk Analysis. And yes, but it was from last year and we were talking about the protests and there was nothing else in the news apart from the Paro Nacional in Colombia. So he's he's gone over 3,000 listens now, uh, downloads. So it's uh, very, very good. And of course, last week's episode on the Colombian uh, congressional and legislative elections was there to kind of explain a little bit of the chaos that taken place. But we recorded too early to get the whole issue of the voting fraud in and so on. But so be it. That's the, the nature of the beast. But anyway, Raphael, you're in Houston. Uh, you are, you know, you're part of the Venezuelan diaspora. You have family and friends still in Venezuela. Uh, your family is originally from Maracaibo. And I mean, tell us, uh, tell us really what's going on right now, because it's it's no longer in the headlines. What I'm getting is, you know, we have, obviously you have Maduro, uh, Nicolas Maduro, and you have Juan Guaido. Uh, I feel that Diosdado Caballo is the one pulling the strings. But what's going on in Venezuela at the moment? I mean, you're the expert. Oof. All right. Where do I start? Um, so... I think to some degree, your your listeners, if they're tuned into what's happening right now in Colombia, there's no way to avoid the the tangential effects that are that are that that are brought out by what's happening in, in Venezuela. Mm. I mean, as you guys know, you guys have at least and. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to apologize in advance because I'm actually battling the flu. I've, <laughs> I've okay. been have I've been sick with the flu for almost a week now, but I'm at the tail end of it, so I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> but no, go, getting back to what what you ask is it's a great it's a great question, and we can go hours on end about exactly what the state of Venezuela, no pun intended, is. It's it's really hard because as I mentioned earlier north of 2 million Venezuelans of the 6 million that have left the country since 2014 have found themselves in Colombia. And part of the reason is because, again, you have a humanitarian crisis, the likes of which this hemisphere has never seen. I mean, there are murmurs among certain pockets of society that conditions of Venezuela have improved. Hmm. And there may be some truth to that in the sense that you have bodegas that are popping up in certain parts of Caracas, in certain parts of the country, like, for example, Puerto La Cruz, where there's some semblance of a middle class, but it makes up a, a small, small majority. And it pales in comparison to the vast majority of the folks that are still living below the poverty line, below extreme poverty. I mean, you have, for example, last we checked, um, national survey uh, data indicating, of course, not sanctioned at all by the government because they don't publish any sort of official reporting, 
it's uh, last I checked at the very at the very least, 90 percent of the country lives below the poverty line. And you have of that 75 percent living in extreme poverty. So that lends itself to a, an extremely dire situation where you have a lot of folks that unfortunately aren't able to get three meals in per day. And they're having to make that dangerous trek, not just to Colombia, but to other parts of Latin America to the United States, a lot of them having to cross that dangerous Darien Gap right in between Colombia and Panama, which is frankly not an area that's not meant to be traversed because it's very just miles of dense, dense jungle. But it just shows the peril and the desperation that Venezuelans are, um, they find themselves in and, and that they're willing to, um, the conditions that they're willing to undergo in order to find Freedom on the other side, freedom, meaning some semblance of economic security. Right um, now, as far as the, dom the domestic situation, it's it's difficult to say, because on the one hand, you have a regime that is as dangerous as ever. Uh, the Maduro regime has consolidated power very much to the detriment of an opposition that I think has withered and influence, unfortunately, over time. So in 2019, the uh, the interim government of Juan Guaido had the staunch support of the international community. We're talking about at least 60 nations worldwide that recognized Juan Guaido as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela, as opposed to Nicolas Maduro, given that he had engaged in all sorts of fraudulent tactics to win the 2018 presidential election. Um, there was a, a strong movement to try and, and oust him and really pressure for number one, the usurpation of power two, a transitional government and three leading to fair, free and fair elections. But unfortunately that really hasn't, that hasn't transpired. And part of the reason is that again, the Maduro regime has consolidated power so much that they have been able to take out legitimate opposition from the National Assembly, have installed really their own public National Assembly in the form of a constituent National Assembly. There are a lot of, there are a lot of dynamics in the inner workings of the legislature that, that are so, so complicated that, and it's done on purpose, right? They overcomplicate it so that it makes it a deeper, deeper, deeper hole to get out of. And they did this again in the span of three years. That in tandem with the fact that you have external non-state actors that are working to sustain the continuation of this regime, you have non-state actors like Russia, Cuba, China, Iran, Turkey, all to varying degrees, right? Some more directly involved than others, particularly the case of Russia and of Cuba. Those are particularly concerning. And uh, just as a shameless plug, you can hear in depth uh, episodes that I've done with other experts where we really go into the depths to which these countries, these non-state actors are are really involved. And of course, as, as your listeners are, are well aware of, probably, you have the ELN as well. And you also have dissidents of the FARC that are fighting for, for territory along the Colombia-Venezuela border, which makes the situation all that much more difficult. And the ELN is one of the groups that's actually operating very much inside of Venezuela, particularly in, uh, in the Apure state of Venezuela. So 
a lot of that makes it the situation where I have another Venezuelan friend of mine that just in conclusion, just to give you, I guess, this this 30,000 foot view, uh, he describes it as a culmination of the movie Mad Max, the movie Jumanji and the movie 1984 all rolled up into one. And that would succinctly describe the situation today in Venezuela. Those are, those are quite diverse examples. I guess you've got the anarchy of Mad Max, the, the, the chaos and the jungle of Jumanji, and then, of course, the, the Orwellian situation with 1984 and Big Brother watching everything. That's, a, that's quite a description. You touched on so many points there. Um, of course, as you said, the 30,000-foot view. Um, I just want to say, you know, you said 6 million Venezuelans have left. That's above 10% of the population of Venezuela has gone. I mean, that's when you think about it, that's, it's, it's just, it's almost, in, it's difficult to even imagine or consider 10% of a population going. And as you describe, if this continues, you know, people failing to have three meals a day, failing to have an economic freedom, you know, being able to provide for their families and for their well-being, this uh, this uh, exodus will continue. Absolutely. And I think part of the problem also is that there has been no accountability and there's been no, there's been no sign from the regime to stop what they're doing or to lessen the the oppression that they have exerted on the opposition on civil societies on on the citizens themselves i mean i'll give you two great examples number one is the fact that just in 2020 you had a situation where there was a fact-finding mission that was dispatched by the united nations uh, the Human Rights Council, to be to be specific, and they actually ended up determining there was a report that they put out that was over 400 pages long, and it offers key evidence of extrajudicial executions, forced disappearances, thousands of cases of torture that have been committed in Venezuela since at least 2014. And really key to all of that is the fact that all of this was done with within the purview of the regime itself. They were not just privy to all of the systemic abuses taking place, but in a lot of times, a lot of times, in a lot of instances, they actually gave orders for these, uh, these systemic abuses to take place. That in, uh, in tandem with the fact that now you have the International Criminal Court recently also uh, embarking on this formal investigation to see whether or not crimes against humanity have been committed by the armed forces and by government uh, individuals within the, the, the Maduro regime since at least 2017, because you've had thousands of people, unfortunately, that have been imprisoned, that have lost, that have lost their lives. And we're basing all of this off of key testimony as far as the uh, the, the descriptions of, of the torture that has transpired over there. You have American prisoners that are that have been unjustly detained in Venezuela as well. So th- there's been no sign of any of that being uh, being alleviated, being corrected, amended, none of that. And this is in spite of good faith and really, I think, to to a to the detriment of the opposition, 
looking for opportunities to to continue negotiating with this regime. There have been 10 different instances at the very least since since at least the presidency of Hugo Chavez to negotiate in good faith with this regime. And those talks continue to break down because of the fact that the regime themselves pull out. So this leads, unfortunately, to this... um, this this removal of hope from the equation, let's say. So Venezuelans, unfortunately, and this is really what I fear the most, Richard, is Venezuelans accepting this as the status quo, saying, well, you know, Maduro's not going anywhere, so we might as well just live with it. That, I think, would be the worst case scenario. Oh, that, yeah, I can I can see that. Uh, that's a very interesting point, certainly on the status quo. Something we will step into later. I wanted to pick up for a second on you know the ELN and the FARC in in Venezuela. I mean, we've known this uh, the FARC dissidents, the Marquetalia, whatever they call themselves now. Uh, we've known this for a while, and that border is very much fluid, you know, back and forth. Uh, you know, last year I was up in Cucuta and observing the trochas and talking to people and the refugee crisis and so on. The ELN, as you say, is that have the so the Ejército Liberación Nacional, the National Liberation Army, started in around 1964, 1965, officially the last remaining guerrilla group, you know, on paper in Colombia, officially. But you know, we can argue this one until the cows come up. But at the same time, as you said, a huge. Uh, presence in Apure. So they're on the border. The other side of the border is Arauca in Colombia. And of course, coca growing regions and the flow of weapons, the flow of people, the flow of coca paste for the production of cocaine. Um, I've read reports about the ELN and I've seen reports of their influence extending all the way across into illegal mining across Venezuela. I've never been able to, you know, obviously uh, uh, completely sort of back up or, you know, I, you read reports from one place, but they, I, I'm never fully uh, convinced. But I mean, you, you know, how far does the ELN's influence uh, go into Colombia, uh, into Venezuela. I mean, by the maps, almost as far as the border with Guyana. It's been significant, Richard. I think that there's absolutely there's a there's a lot of truth in the reports that have been coming out since at least 2018. Uh, analyses that confirm very much the presence of the ELN, uh, specifically um, finding themselves in these mining operations, specifically in the Orinoco mining arc. So for your viewers and for your listeners, um, the Orinoco mining arc is this really, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that it's like this El Dorado of the Western hemisphere. That's just rich in all sorts of natural resources. We're talking about bauxite, coltan. Coltan is the, um, it's the ingredient that is used, or not the ingredient, but it's 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 the key component that's used to manufacture microchips that you can find in your in your phone. So your iPhone, there's a good chance that it has coltan inside of it. And I don't want to speculate the extent to which that coltan comes from Venezuela, but um, there is a uh, there, there's a large presence of ELN inside of this sort of El Dorado, which we call the Orinoco Mining Arc, which is in the state of Bolivar in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about an area that's about as large as the state of Ohio here in the United States. And that has been sort of the proverbial piggy bank of the Maduro regime, because remember, the Maduro regime is currently sanctioned by the United States and by other Western entities more targeted, albeit. But but they 
they are uh, they're prohibited from being able to to uh, to export their oil to other parts of the world, specifically the United States, which was their uh, their primary source of export. So they've looked for other ways since then, and instead of I guess ramping up other sectors of uh, of the economy, they've looked for other illicit ways to uh, to sustain their their staying power. And one of them, apart from the drug trafficking, is the um, the activity in the Orinoco mining arc, where, as you mentioned earlier, the ELN is very much present. Uh, they're continually um, skirmishing with indigenous communities that are really at risk from the ELN establishing such a presence there. Uh, they've also found themselves nestled in uh, the western parts of Venezuela, where they actually help with the distribution of the clap boxes. So the clap boxes, of course, are the uh, are the government rationed boxes. Well, now they're bags because I don't I don't know to what degree they're able to manufacture the cardboard for the, for the boxes themselves. But that is a uh, it, it's a state program or, or a. Uh, a government program that is used by the regime as a form of social control. And there's, there's just so much that I can go into that, uh, that really explains how the government has been so, um, has been so successful in, uh, extending their staying power. But yes, to answer your question, the ELN part that, that presence that they have and the alliance that they have, with the regime, because the regime has effectively invited them, not just them, but also the Segunda Marquetia, or Marquetia, as you uh, hmm. mentioned earlier, Marquetalia, sorry, long morning. Right. The Segunda Marquetalia, which um, has its leaders that were also invited effectively by the Maduro regime back in 2019. So they've created this sort of safe haven where they're able to operate largely uninterrupted inside of Venezuela. It's just, it's it's peculiar to think that a, a guerrilla group, ELN, for example, so designed, you know, trying to topple the Colombian state is now so very much, you know, I mean, back in the day in the Cold War and so on, it's so very much embedded in Colombia. And the ELN themselves, they have a kind of nomadic kind of uh, existence. They don't create camps. And so they sort of move around a lot. But it seems to me that they're very established then, especially, as you say, in this Orinoquia area uh, 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 and then around the mining, legal, illegal, and so on. I mean, it's it, it's a complete evolution, and not only in, in Venezuelan society, but in the way that Colombia will have to or has to address the issue of illegal armed groups, which kind of brings us to this, this issue of the Apure bordering Arauca. I mean, in April of this year, 2022, there are all sorts of skirmishes taking place. I don't doubt that they continue. They're just not hitting the news anymore. Could you explain to the listeners a little bit what was going on there in that particular border section? Yes, absolutely. So right there uh what separates arauca and apure is the uh the arauca river mm -hmm. so on the one side you have arauca in colombia and then you have apure in venezuela and that has been a uh, a hotbed for for violence for the longest time specifically because you have warring factions of dissenters of the FARC, which, as your listeners know, made peace with the Colombian government back in 2016. Mm -hmm. But 
there are dissidents of that uh, of that organization that have since looked to continue their their illicit activity inside of, of Venezuela, particularly. And you have different factions that are looking to actually continue this, right? So, as I mentioned earlier, you have the uh, you have the Segunda Marquetalia. Mm-hmm. The Segunda Marquetalia is a group that is in line uh, in, in alignment with the Maduro regime. So that one is led by Ivan Marquez and Jesus Santrich, if I'm not mistaken. And they wanted to try and, um, and get another faction, which is the 10th Front, to align with them inside of Venezuela because all of them didn't accept the peace agreement with the FARC in 2016, but they all maintain again, that active border presence between Colombia and Venezuela. And since then, because when, um, when the 10th front didn't accept that the government, the, the regime of Venezuela basically authorized a campaign to try and take out the 10th front inside of Venezuela. So what the regime made it seem like was this heroic, patriotic, nationalistic campaign to take out drug trafficking and, and, uh, and purge it from, uh, from the, from the, from the, from the fatherland of Venezuela because I'm just, I'm speaking in brash terms because those are the brash terms that, uh, the Maduro regime likes to use when it, when it speaks in, in basically every occasion. Right. I can imagine. Um, <laughs> but the, but the reality of the situation in Richard is that they, they're just, they're basically looking to clear that area for the Segunda Marquetalia to be able to operate largely uninterrupted. And a lot of this came to a, um, to a to a stand not a standstill but there was sort of a there, there was a climactic event back in february so last month where the the colombian military actually ended up killing the uh the leader of the um of the 10th front which i believe his name was uh it was arturo i can't remember what his full name was but he was the leader of the 10th front and in doing so, that has led to, a, I guess, another stage of this, uh, a lot of this conflict going on between the, the Segunda Marquetalia, which is, by the way, allied with the ELN, hmm. but the 10th Front is in a battle with the ELN and Venezuelan security forces. So it just, it's this hodgepodge of all these different warring factions. And unfortunately the people who suffer the most are the ones that live along the Colombia Venezuela border. So I believe the town of Arauquita has been under, uh, under curfew for the past month or so because of the violence that has, uh, that it's found itself in that part of the region as well. So it's, it's a very, it's a very delicate situation because there's, there are no signs of stopping when you have so many different factions that are looking to resolve a conflict that have so many different players involved. Uh, it, it's almost impossible. And uh, this, this power struggle that takes place there. And of course, as you say, it's the local people, the people on the ground who suffer. I had no idea that it was the Segunda Marquetalia trying to move it in there to control with the tacit blessing of the Maduro regime to get out the Frente Diez, the 10th front, 
which again, it's a dissident regime, but there's nothing political there in the Cold War sense. It's a, it's a narco trafficking group of 10th Front. They run that area. Into, um, but I mean, it's just, it, yeah, I, I don't see that clearing up anytime soon. And this, this issue and this theme that you brought up of this, let's say the sort of, we're going to drive out the 10th Front from within Venezuela, therefore we will rid the Colombian plague from Venezuela. I can hear Maduro saying it in, you know, a sort of Floripond way. Um, yeah, it appeals very much to a nationalistic, uh, you know, uh, dialogue. And, and that brings me to the next point is that very recently there was an article in Foreign Policy magazine about, you know, what Russia's invasion of Ukraine might mean for Venezuela uh, and Guyana. And, and of course, Venezuela, for those who don't know, and if you've seen a Venezuelan map, it's quite special. Venezuela claims, I would say, around a third of a third of the Guyanese uh, uh, territory. You know, when you when you look at it on a map, there's a big red shaded part on a Venezuelan map, and it's like a territory in dispute. And of course, this saber rattling and and you know nationalism. I mean, we can but speculate. But what do you? I mean, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you you've addressed this on your podcast, the State of Venezuela podcast. What I mean, what is the the reality? Uh, what is the likelihood of a Venice, Venezuelan sort of trying to roll their tanks across this area, you know, into Guyana? So I think depending, a lot of that has to do, I personally believe, with the the likelihood of success of this quote unquote special military operation in Ukraine that is being carried out right now by Vladimir Putin and the and the Kremlin by extension. And, and I say that because I, as I'm sure your your listeners might know. Venezuela and Russia are very, very closely aligned. They they've signed hundreds of agreements, not just on uh, on the economic front, but also on military. So Venezuela is always going to go up to bat for Russia. Now, the reason why, um, for example, if uh, if there's any sort of pushback or anybody points out that Venezuela abstained from the United Nations uh, General Assembly vote to investigate Russia or just to condemn them on a uh, just on a on a grander on a grander scale it was not that they didn't want to participate it's that they weren't able to they weren't able to because Venezuela owes around 40 million dollars in unpaid dues to the UN and because of that it actually lost its voting rights a while ago otherwise i'm very confident that Venezuela would have proudly voted against the condemnation of Russia's actions in Ukraine. And part of the reason we know this specifically, and this is discarding the, the decades of, um, of support that Vladimir Putin has shown to both Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, is the fact that Venezuela, or I should say Nicolas Maduro, publicly announced its support for Russia prior to them moving in. And not only that, but even after even after Russian attacks against Ukrainian um, civilians started, Venezuela was one of five countries in the UN Human Rights Council to actually vote against an urgent session to begin with. And that followed a visit by the deputy prime minister of Russia to Caracas, where, again, another Russia-Venezuela security cooperation agreement was signed. Nicolas Maduro called 
Vladimir Putin to pledge um, a a basically to reiterate his pledge to strengthen cooperation. And this made headlines uh, for a brief moment, but Russia's deputy foreign minister himself ruled out the possibility of enhancing Russia's existing military presence in Venezuela. So when you have these different elements at play, Venezuela is watching very, very closely what's happening in, in Ukraine, because in a sense, they could use it to justify invading either Colombia or Guyana. Mm. Because before we get specifically into Guyana, let's not forget, I don't know if you saw this, Richard, but there was actually just a couple of days ago, uh, a statement or, or commentary from Venezuela's number two, let's call him. He's the, the vice president of Venezuela's um, Socialist Party. And he suggested that there should be a military operation carried out in Colombia similar to that of Russia's in Ukraine. Hmm. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, well, you know, I'm not an expert on what's happening in Ukraine, but the more time passes, the more the worse it will be for the Nazis of Ukraine, because he's borrowing, of course, the language that Putin has used to call for this, quote unquote, denazification of Ukraine. Hmm. Ridiculous, but I digress. He says, because the denazification will be rooted out. And then he said, and this is what I just really made me roll my eyes. He said, why don't they take the opportunity to decocainize Colombia to see what's left after that? So when you have this sort of brash commentary coming from somebody like Diosdado Cabello, who, as you mentioned earlier, is uh, really, in a lot of ways, the brains behind uh, the the continuation and really the construction of the Bolivarian Revolution, someone who has justified the aggression of Putin in Ukraine, um, I wouldn't put it past him or Nicolas Maduro to launch uh, further attacks along the Colombia-Venezuela border in the name of patriotism and expunging uh, drug trafficking, that which they themselves have been sanctioning or, or providing a safe haven for years. Um, so it seems very, very hypocritical to me. But in the case of Guyana, Guyana just recently filed a, with the International Court of Justice to try and settle this border dispute between Guyana and Venezuela. And although Venezuelans do, for the most part, believe strongly that that the state of Guyana, or as we call it, the Essequibo region belongs to Venezuela. I think that Venezuelans will stop short of aligning themselves with a position taken by Nicolas Maduro to use that as a means to justify an incursion of, uh, of a neighbor's sovereignty, the same way that they've done with Russia and Ukraine. And tying it back to the Russia-Ukraine situation, if that fails... I don't see Nicolas Maduro using the, the failure of Russia to justify his own military campaign to go inside of Guyana, just because the world will have fresh in their minds how not only that it's wrong, but the consequences that await a country that tries to pull off something similar, regardless of where it transpires around the world. Also, I mean... You know, there's an international community sitting on the sidelines at the moment uh, to try and topple Maduro in you know in any way, shape, or form, and uh, you know his uh, his a sanctioned invasion of a sovereign state would 
you know, enable enable uh, foreign intervention. I mean, that's even naysayers would say, well, you know, they, they did do this, especially, as you say, with this Russia-Ukraine situation right now. It would, But I, I think of the geography, it'd be very hard to, to sort of roll tanks across into the SQ area and so on. But what, so what's, um, uh, let's say, Venezuela's na- naval capacity? Because they could blockade, I suppose. They could. And I think a lot of that, unfortunately, I have to say, is uh, credited to Russia. Mm. Russia has been a huge provider of a lot of the, the, the different weaponry and the, and the naval fleet the, and also the, um, the tanks. A lot of different components of the military that Venezuela is able to brandish mm. is very much thanks to both Russia and China. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that Russia has been the one that has been more willing to really sink its money into Venezuelan quicksand and continue to arm Venezuela, understanding how much of a loss that is in investment to the point even where I believe Colombia's foreign minister actually met with the ambassador of Colombia inside of Venezuela because of concerns that they wanted to raise, uh, specifically given the fact that the the biggest concern is that these armed groups that we've been talking about earlier could get their hands on these weapon systems that Russia has delivered to the Maduro regime in order to fight specifically this uh, this supposed incursion of the tenth front. Mm-hmm. But really, it's just been a an excuse to continue to militarize that border and and, and keep Venezuela armed to the teeth. Now, Russia has responded by saying that we're not going to uh, we're, we're going to make sure that those those weapons don't fall in the hands of these irregular armed groups that are operating inside of Venezuela. But there's there's no guarantee that could happen. Right. And there was actually um, in 2017, a report from Reuters saying that Maduro probably or his regime has some 5000 Russian made surface to air missiles. So it speaks to the military capacity that Maduro has been able to wield very much in large part thanks to Russia. Mm. And uh, am I wrong in in, in mentioning that uh, Venezuela got the rights to be able to produce Kalashnikovs, AK-47, some time ago, Russian, Russian uh, weaponry? I'm actually not sure about that. Um, I would have to look into it, but it would not surprise me. Yeah, I, it just, I mean, I remember something, but it's just it's just popped up in my head right now. So, it's a, and and this this connection to Russia, I mean, as you say, they are very much interlinked. Uh, this has to then feed towards you know this this, this Russian practice of, of of major disinformation coming out, not only Russia, Venezuela, and so on. I, how do you see this at the moment? This disinformation campaign. That's probably one of the most concerning features. So much so that it's partly what inspired me to start producing this podcast in the first place. You have a lot of these different outlets like Sputnik, Russia Today. Russia Today, just to give your audience, Richard, an idea of how influential it is, not just in in Venezuela, but really in Latin America at large. If you look at the statistics of viewership of RT inside of uh, Latin America. I know this is the case in Venezuela, but they have, at least on Facebook, 
Russia Today in Spanish has more than double the amount of followers than Russia Today in English. And it gives you just an idea of how successful Russia has been in disseminating a lot of the disinformation that uh, that they like to, to plug into different media outlets inside of Latin America. Another great example of that is Telesur. Mm. Telesur, I don't know to what degree they operate inside of Colombia, but they, they operate very much in places like Cuba, Bolivia, I think to some degree and still in places like Ecuador, Uruguay. Although because of the fact that ideologically, there's a lot of oscillation from one side of the aisle to the other in uh, in Latin America, that really determines the extent to which outlets like Telesur or like Russia Today can be successful. But in the case of Russia Today, they've maintained a very, very successful presence inside of Venezuela. And I think really to bring it closer to home and to your viewers, they've been very successful in trying to weaponize disinformation inside of Colombia. Mm. And the way that they do this is not necessarily making light of any sort of, let me rephrase that. It's not necessarily that they antagonize or they make Russia to be the good guy. What they do is they like to sow discord among their own citizens and really bring people into the more extreme ends of the spectrum. And so what they've done really successfully is in the case of the the skirmishes between Colombia and Venezuela is paint Duque and his administration they being the uh the drug traffickers, they being the dictatorship or the illegitimate government and Venezuela being the democracy, just looking to defend itself. It's like this sort of role reversal that seems on its face, just ludicrous. But the reality is that because of the way that they're able to present this information with, uh, with semi-presentable quasi-intelligent journalists that sprinkle different elements of truth, but just completely stretch it to the point where they're able to point the finger at somebody else. Uh, they're able to make it really seem like that's the case. And a lot of people buy into it. So, uh, to answer your question, yes, it's extremely concerning because on a, on a global stage, at least in the English speaking world, Russia today is able to paint this picture of what's transpiring in Venezuela as this CIA orchestrated coup that they just plucked Juan Guaido out of nowhere and they just fitted him with a suit and tie and said, hey, you're going to be our guy for regime change. And he said, sir, yes, sir, CIA. That's the way that they like to paint it. But the way that they present this information, they will really convince people of it. So it scares me that they have this sort of capacity, not just in Venezuela, but in places like Colombia or Brazil or other places that are headed to presidential elections very, very soon. It's a yeah, this is interesting, definitely. And and it it pulls in the emotions, of course, and bringing back to th- thoughts of like the bad old days in the 80s and 70s. And of course, interventionist policies into these countries. And the people are still alive uh, today who re- recall this. So it's, it's very easy to, to appeal to this. I have to ask, and it just, again, it popped up. What is, what is your... Um, 
your take, because of course the Russia-Ukraine uh, kind of issues, a conflict, a war, uh, this, this invasion, uh, the I guess the how would you put it, the feelers put out by the Biden administration to Venezuela, I guess uh, regarding oil supplies. Great question. Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, I'll, I'll briefly explain this to the audience. It's funny. I, the day right after I put out my interview with, uh, Dr. Evan Ellis about, uh, Russia's relationship with Venezuela, not one day later, I come to find that there is a sudden trip of the highest level delegation of senior officials from the United States to Caracas, the highest in five years, at least. And it was uh, an envoy from the National Security Council mm. and uh, the special envoy for uh, for hostage affairs and somebody else on that team. And they met with the regime of Nicolas Maduro and by extension with Maduro himself. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, this was something that was months in the making. Mm. So it wasn't something that was planned. That was it wasn't an impromptu visit. Let's put it mm-hmm. that way. At least that's what they say, according to the reports that were put out by the White House, the way that they explained it. And while I'm happy that they did end up securing the release of one of the members of the Sitco Six, which for your audience is a group of six Venezuelan Americans that have been detained unjustly in Venezuela since 2017, along with a Cuban American that's been inside of Venezuela since 2019. I believe he was there for literally for tourism purposes. He was a tourist and they, they nabbed him and uh, tried to impose these trumped up charges against him saying that he was involved in some sort of suspected coup plot or something like that. Um, I'm not sure, but they were able to get him released, which is important. So to answer your question, I I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, Number one, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed for two reasons, both from a personal and a a practical standpoint. Um, I understand that there needs to be some change in the strategy of maximum pressure because clearly that has not worked. Um, As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Maduro's power continues to consolidate at the expense of any sort of opposition movement or really any sort of resistance whatsoever. There there are very few pockets of legitimate opposition that have a voice inside of Venezuela anymore, unfortunately. So from a practical standpoint, Venezuela's sector, oil sector is in complete tatters. Its production capacity stands at about 700,000 barrels per day. So Colombia actually, by comparison, is producing more oil than Venezuela. And it would take a massive cash infusion of at least 12 billion per year for nearly a decade to restore production to optimal levels. Um, While they do say, uh, I think they have backtracked since then, um, from the day that uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki here in the United States said that one of the things that, that was discussed was energy security. We had folks from both sides of the aisle, both Republicans and Democrats, expressing their concerns because really what that means is it, it's a backtrack from a promise that President Biden campaigned on, which is to stand with the Venezuelan people and to be tough on Maduro. In contrast to what he described as former President Trump appeasing Maduro. So when you have this sort of potential pivot 
to from obtaining oil from one tyrant to obtaining oil from another it uh it, it does it, it's 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 hard to justify it is and for an administration that prides itself on caring about the environment this is also particularly devastating because Pedevesa has presided over what we could describe as ecocide for at least the better part of five years. So it's a, it's a destruction of the uh, of, of the natural beauty of of the, the Amazon region because of the illegal oil mining that's been taking place. Uh, there have been an average of five oil spills per day inside of Venezuela, and between 2010 and 2016, there was an there were about 46,000 different oil spills. So, excuse me. So. There's still a lot of speculation as far as where this could go, because one of the accomplishments that the Biden administration touted in this visit was a commitment for Venezuela or for the Maduro regime to return to the negotiating table. But that was something that was shot down by Diosdado Cabello himself. And he said, that's actually not going to happen anytime soon. And even if it did, as I mentioned before, Richard, there, there have been 10 different opportunities to negotiate, the last of which was shot down specifically because the United States extradited Colombian national turned Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab. Alex Saab is a Colombian national who is basically the primary financier money launderer of Nicolas Maduro himself. And he was extradited from Cape Verde to the United States. And what I think is just, it's laughable to me, is part of the reason that the Maduro regime suspended their end of participating in the talks is they actually wanted to include Alex Saab as a participant of these negotiations. I don't understand on in what universe it would make any logical sense to bring somebody like that to have a say in negotiations between the Venezuelan opposition and the Maduro regime. But regardless, that was their reasoning for wanting to exit, to pull out. So to think that they're going to plug themselves back in and we're not going to have the same result, I think uh, speaks to a little bit of maybe naivete, wishful thinking, or really just giving too much of a benefit of the doubt to a regime, a cohort of kleptocratic, autocratic individuals that show no signs of wanting to surrender power anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, why would why would they really? Unfortunately, say it. Why would they want to? They've got it, they've got absolute power, and we know of the corruption around it. Uh, uh, I yeah, I I didn't find I I, I don't. Well, I would have my questions surrounding whether this this meeting between Biden and 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 what well, Biden's Biden's team and the Venezuelan regime was months in the making. I I would have my my you know my doubts around that because it seems so knee jerk just after the, let's say the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It seems so fast, and and surely if it was months in the making, you'd be like. This is not the moment. <laughs> this is not the moment to do this. It doesn't it doesn't right. come across so well when you think of diplomacy, international relations, and so on. Moving on to our final point, and we have to do it. And I know my listeners will be they'll be going, but why hasn't he talked about the Colombian elections? Let's talk about the <laughs> Colombian elections. Our current front runner, Gustavo Petro, former M19 guerrilla, former mayor of Bogota, left wing, 
And then, of course, now his uh, vice presidential uh, ticket with Francia Marquez. Uh, the opposition to him, so the right-wing Fico, Fer, uh, Federico Fico Gutierrez, uh, they're all talking about, and it's a, you know, it's a very emotive subject as well, Pedro wins and he's going to turn Colombia into Venezuela. Now, again, uh, today, well, let's say we're recording this, the Washington Post article comes out and, and Sergio Guzman, director of Colombia Risk Analysis, was quoted in fact, and he said, listen, in Colombia, people are, are so fed up with the status quo, and that's why I referred to it earlier, that Venezuela isn't the most frightening thing anymore, turning into Venezuela. It, it, really the most frightening thing for Colombia right now, due to the underlying problems, inequality, and, and so on, corruption, poverty, uh, the conflict, the lack of any activity really on the 2016 peace accords, the deaths of social leaders, and so on. Uh, but the fear in Colombia amongst, I would say, the majority in terms of people who would vote for Gustavo Petro, it's a certain continuity of this status quo. As as a Venezuela expert, how do you see this? You know that the the possibility of a left wing president who has had. I guess we can say some sort of relationship with the Chavez and Maduro regime. The awful truth, Richard, I'm, I'm terrified. <laughs> There's no other way around it. And I think that my, my fellow Venezuelans will agree with me. Um, it's, it's hard to put into words really the prospect of having neighboring Colombia, which has been a saving grace for the Venezuelan people. I think we're in Venezuelans are in an enormous uh, amount of debt to to Colombia for showing such such um, such empathy for the most part. Um, I mean, of course, it's it's on a case by case basis. Um, certainly, that's not the case with the mayor of Bogota, who unfortunately has made some incendiary remarks against the Venezuelan people that are that are living inside of Colombia. But I know that's not an opinion that is shared with most Colombians. Most Colombians, I think, have done a great job of uh, really assimilating the Venezuelan people into uh, into their new home. And understanding that this is really through no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. When you bring in a, uh, first of all, a former M19 guerrilla who not only has a past of having more of a conciliatory, a conciliatory tone towards some of these non-state actors, but also being a close friend of Hugo Chavez, he actually, he went, excuse me. My apologies. He went to his funeral. He went to his funeral back in 2013. And um, I was reading somewhere in the in the Washington, uh, not Washington, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal that uh, Gustavo Petro said that he went to a, a supermarket in Caracas where he said, you see, the the shelves are, are just super well stocked. Everything is fine here in Venezuela. I don't know what people are freaking out about. Um, he's been, he's really waffled on his stance on Venezuela. And I think, uh, understandably, so he, ha he can't keep that sort of tone when it's universally understood that Venezuela is very much 
under the thumb of an ironclad dictatorship. It's there's no getting around it. When you have international bodies like the UN Human Rights Council, the International Criminal Court now looking into crimes against humanity committed by this regime, it, it's hard to maintain a conciliatory tone. I mean, you have other leftists, let's say, uh, leaders that have been um, more on the fence because of it. Uh, for example, you have Gabriel Boric of Chile, who I think has done a decent job of trying to distance himself from the Maduro regime. I can't say the same in the case of Pedro Castillo, but excuse me, I can see Colombia going the way of Pedro Castillo in the sense that a lot of this economic turmoil and a lot of the fears that that Colombians have, which are justified, right, because of the the outbreak of COVID nineteen, because of the the protests that took place last year, a lot of the the state sponsored violence that was uh, that was uh, reported to have taken place because of uh, security forces uh, authorized by by Ivan, President Ivan Duque. I understand all those things, but. I would say this as a word of caution to the Colombian people. Be very careful what you wish for. This is a man, Gustavo Petro, who wants to expropriate private pension savings and wants to stop Colombia's oil production, which right now is Colombia's number one export. And from what I understand, he was asked if he would respect his four-year term as president, and he wouldn't give a straightforward answer. So this all rings far too familiar for Venezuelans who were in a situation like that in 1998. He touched the nerve of disenchanted, or I should say Venezuelans that were disenchanted with the two-state party system. And when you believe in somebody who comes in and wants to swoop in and present themselves as a savior, if it seems too true to be, if it seems too good to be true, it's because it is. Venezuela is the perfect example of that. I mean, Cubans warned us, you need to be careful with this Hugo Chavez guy. We can see you guys turning into Cuba. And the vast majority of Venezuelans sort of just balked at that idea of, of well, becoming a reality. And now, not only are we worse than off than Cuba, but we find ourselves in the same situation as Haiti. I mean, we're comparable to Haiti now. If Colombians don't think that that could happen in Colombia, I give you the case of Hugo Chavez. Again, a man who was with whom Gustavo Petro was very, very close. And this is by no means an endorsement of, uh, of Figo Gutierrez or Sergio Fajardo, but I would encourage folks to look at more serious alternatives and to please not let emotions get the best of you because the last time that was tried in Venezuela, we ended up in the situation that we're in now. I, I, there's a, there's a couple of things. I, I am, I am not a petrista. I look at this, oh, I can't vote, but I look at this election with, I just, my, you know, my shoulders just, uh, just fall when I just look at it. I'm like, God, um, I, a couple of things. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think that having Venezuela alongside Colombia obviously is, you know, a great warning that Colombians would heed. Obviously, it appeals to emotions. Uh, I don't know enough about the pension story to be able to comment on it. I've seen some refutations, and I've seen, some, but I don't know enough about it. But the, regarding the oil exploration, it's, it's. I think 
there was something taken out of context. This is not to defend him, it's just to put it into context. I think he said no new oil production or exploration, but the current ones would continue. You know, I mean, who knows? But as you say, Gabriel Boric in, in, in Chile has done a fine job of, of, of distancing himself. Pedro Castillo in Peru, not so much. Gustavo Petro, who knows, because he's been very, very wishy-washy on, on this. And this. Uh, the thing, the difference, big difference I see, and I just put this out there, is that Chavez, of course, had the support of the military or, or much of the military, whereas Petro will go into if he wins, he'll go into a presidency with no support from the military or the police or so on. And I mean, he alienated them all as mayor of Bogota. So he'd go in without that. So that there is that. <laughs> there is that as a, maybe a same. I think if if he were to win, there wouldn't, not a lot would go on. He might try and do some of these things. But like when he was mayor of Bogota, his hands were tied from the very beginning, anything he wanted to do. And so I think he would be like a kind of a, a very negative president. He'd be always up, be up there on the, on the balcony screaming, you know, uh, that, that nobody's letting him and the establishment and the machinery is not permitting him to, to do anything and to affect change and say that the people should go out in the streets. But I think at the same time, he'd be like a Lopez Obrador figure, uh, just bitter, better there and and you know he would do things that were that hopefully hopefully could be i don't know undone or so maybe some that were beneficial i don't know but i worry about this i worry about this election a lot this one you know federico gutierrez gustavo petro sergio fajardo who we're still waiting for him to wake up um so we will see may 29th the first round but again words of warning of course it's it's important to hear all sides of of this debate and to have you uh, rafael talking about the venezuelan context and the venezuelan way that things can be seen and the connections between the two countries and this thing this this you know colombia has shown remarkable humanity in in maintaining the borders open to accept venezuelans uh, and this should be applauded and and celebrated it's true i don't think that there was any other choice, I think, but I think, I think the two countries are so very linked, obviously, not just the geographical, the, the families, they, they extend across the borders, especially, you know, in the real boom years of Venezuela in the 70s and 80s, and the violence in Colombia, so many Colombians went across, and then that sort of osmosis with families, Colombo, Venezuelans, you, you know, one and the same. And, and, and yes, the mayor of Bogota, Claudia Lopez said some very inflammatory things right at the beginning, I think of COVID and so, um, but now if you've seen that the terminology has changed, you can't say, you don't blame everything on the Venezuelan diaspora anymore. You say, you say foreigners, <laughs> you say extranjeros. Right. And suddenly I'm like, hang on, I'm an extranjero. <laughs> but, it's like, hang on a second. So we, we see a whole bunch of like Brits, you know, knife-wielding Brits. <laughs> so, but um, I, I, let me just take this moment and say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all of this information, which you clearly have, uh, you know, coming out of your ears and being able to express it so coherently and clearly and to me and to my listeners. And let me recommend you all out there Listen, tune in to, subscribe to the State of Venezuela podcast. So very interesting. It, it's available wherever you get your podcast. Rafael Eduardo Struve, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. 
Richard, thank you so much. Well, we've overrun a little bit, but it has been a fantastic conversation. I really, I've certainly learned a great deal, certainly, uh, uh, you know, uh, have to consider everything now. And we've we've covered Russia, we've covered Ukraine, we've covered Guyana, we've covered Colombia, there've been touches on Peru and Chile and so on. I mean, wow, we've really got there. So let me take this time again. The State of Venezuela podcast is on Twitter as well, Rafael Eduardo Struve. It's on everywhere you get your podcasts. Tune in. We'll be back next week with more Colombia-related content here on the Colombia Calling podcast. Thank you to all of you who've signed up to our Patreon campaign, patreon.com forward slash Colombia Calling. It allows us, your donations allow us to be somewhat financially viable to continue going. This has been episode 418. I've been Richard McCall. Thank you for listening. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.